0: Look in your bulletins, if you will, to uh, our text today. It's from the book of Hebrews, in fact, the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. And you also may want to open the scriptures, if you will, if you brought your Bibles, and you should have. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. I want you to look at these verses very carefully as I read them. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. 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 You may be seated. As you might imagine, I've got a pretty keen burden on these uh, last few messages to communicate Truths that uh, I hope will stay with us for a long, long time. Uh, Last week I preached about prayer and how prayer changes things. This week I'd like to preach about and exalt none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to preach today on the the threefold cure. Uh, That threefold cure is found in what's traditionally known as the great three offices and work of Jesus Christ of prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. That's a a traditional way of speaking about the Lord's work that goes back a long, long time. In fact, it goes back to uh, the first church father, Eusebius. You may have heard about uh, Eusebius. Uh, He was also a favorite of the French reformer John Calvin. And there's no place in the Bible where it's found in more compressed form than these verses. These verses here in Hebrews chapter 1. Therefore I want to preach about them today and that truth and uh, perhaps I would like to do that in a unique way that you've never heard before. Uh, Let me begin by noting that our forefathers saw this threefold office and this work as the cure, the cure to mankind's ailment. The cure. In fact, in Latin, it's called the munus triplex, or triplex. Like the threefold cure. It's kind of like we would say three variations on the same medicine in order to heal us. The entire work of Jesus Christ on the earth was necessitated by the fall of man. To put it bluntly, the fall is the problem, Jesus Christ is the solution. Sin is the disease, and our Lord is the cure. Now, that's kind of a segue to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So we read in this passage, did you notice there, I believe it's in verse 3, that Jesus Christ made purification for our sins. Now that's talking about his great work as our priest. Now, what's the role of a priest? A priest is a, a mediator. A priest represents God to men and men to God. Now let's think about this. There was a time when a priest wasn't necessary. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, we read that before the fall, God would come down as a breath of wind, the cool of the day. Some translations say it means as a wind or a breath. And he would commune with Adam and Eve. Was a priest needed? Was a mediator needed? No, because there was no sin. God would come face to face with man and meet with man because there was no sin. There was nothing standing in the way. But of course, then they sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. And instinctively, they knew they couldn't see God. They couldn't encounter God in their fully exposed openness. That's the reason they made skins to cover themselves. Some people have the wrong idea. It's not because they had some sexual embarrassment. That wasn't the issue. He was knowing instinctively that sin separated them from God. They had to be hidden from God. They had to be hidden from him. And they couldn't have that communion. with Now that's why it was necessary after the fall to offer sacrifices to God. God established sacrifice, animal sacrifices generally, as a way to clear the road back to him. The sin problem had to be taken care of. And the way to take care of it was by death. A sacrificial death. The Bible says that plainly. The soul that sinneth, it'll die. And then I love the text in Leviticus 17.11. The blood makes atonement for the soul. And that's why God established priests in Israel. The job of the priest was to offer the blood of the animal on the altar before God to appease his righteous judgment. Then, when man's sin was atoned for, when the animal had died, when it was paid for, man could come back into communion with God, and that's why priests were necessary. Well, the book of Hebrews, then, teaches that all of these animals sacrificed in the Old Testament were simply a temporary means of atonement. They all pointed to the one final, enduring sacrifice, who was who? Jesus Christ, of course. The Old Testament priests offered sacrifices for Israel and for their own sins. But Jesus, who wasn't a sinner, offered his own body as a sacrifice on the cross. In other words, and this is very powerful, he was the priest who was his own sacrifice. He was the priest who was his own sacrifice. This means Jesus Christ is the only way to get back into communion with God. Jesus and his death is the cure to man's estrangement from God. And he is the only way. He's the only way. Now today, sadly, and this is where I want to make a very important application, we don't often think in these terms. Even when we consider sin, and most people don't even think about sin today, do they? We think of sin's uh, pollution, its corruption, all of the bad effects that sin has on us. And of course, sin does pollute. And sin does corrupt. It poisons our mind. It poisons our will. It poisons our emotions. It destroys friendships. It destroys families. It destroys vocations. It destroys culture, right? Yeah. And all of life. What do you think of examples of drunkenness? And and, uh, drug and sexual addiction and sexually transmitted diseases and body mutilations and envy and covetousness racism, I mean, we could just go on and on and on and on. But if we think only of the pollution of sin and all this bad stuff, we can get very man-centered. Yeah, sin's really bad because it hurts me. But you see, the greatest problem with sin is that sin separates us from God. That's the problem. God created us for communion with him, for communion with the Trinity, Jesus said in Job 17. The Father and the Son and the Spirit relished their communion. And they wanted to share it. They wanted more and more people to commune. And that's why God made man. So he could share this wonderful fellowship. But sin breaks that communion. And sin also breaks God's heart. As I was pointing out last Sunday in Genesis 6. Isn't that sad in Noah's day that God looked down and he was so sad in his heart. Why did I make man? Why did I do this? They've broken fellowship with me and have turned their back on me. And all I wanted was to commune with them. Sin is so bad because it hurts God. It offends God, our Creator. That's the main problem of sin. But sin also brings us under God's righteous judgment. Romans 1 is very clear about that. God created man to love and commune with him. But man, of course, turned his back on God. And today man turns his back on God. And therefore we sin. And when we sin, we're acting in ways for which we were never created. We're destroying God's beautiful design. God's beautiful design. Using our bodies for things for which they were never created. This is why God threatens judgment for all of those who refuse to turn to Jesus Christ. He judges sin because sin wrecks God's lovely design for man. But the scripture is clear on this. Jesus is the cure. He suffered on the cross for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. And when we trust in him, his righteousness becomes ours. And that's the only way to avoid God's judgment. There's no other way. Jesus is the cure. Jesus is the cure for this estrangement from God, for the Father's judgment on all of humanity. He's the cure. This is wonderful. Jesus is the cure for God's broken heart with man. Jesus is the cure. And the cure for his holy anger at what man has done to creation. Oh, it's amazing, it's terrible, what man has done with creation, what man has done with his body. Things that were never intended. That's vital to understand. When we sin, we use this and our mind for things for which it was never intended. And it doesn't work well when it's never intended. Mark was just coming back from Alaska. I'll never forget my trip to Alaska. We went to a village there, Lime Village, and it was an Indian village. And they would often, at that time, they didn't have the internet, so they would get big Sears and Roebuck. Remember the Sears and Roebuck catalogs? Big old Sears and Roebuck catalogs. Well, the government government would just give these Indians, Native Americans, would give them lots of money. They would come to the village and give them lots of money and and send Sears and Roebuck catalogs. And so they would just like order stuff, just order stuff. But they didn't know how to use it. One thing they did know how to use, they would get snowmobiles, no way to get into this place, except by flying in, or you could go from the Kenai Peninsula up, take about two weeks, or you could fly in, about 45 minutes. And so the missionary there, she goes, you know what a lot of the young guys do? They'll look on the Sears World Book catalog and see shiny things, and they would order, are you ready for this? They would order toasters, and take the electrical cord and tie them on the back of their snowmobile and pull toasters around, because they didn't know. I mean, this is shiny. This is something shiny in a catalog. They didn't know what it was for. And we think, that's just like, what a waste. But see, that's what happens when man sins. It's a waste. It's a waste of something. It's a misuse of something. We don't know what it's used for. So today, amid this just sort of moral apathy we have around us, we have to proclaim a great foundational truth of the gospel. Man is a sinner. Man has broken God's law. Man stands under God's judgment. And it's only when people come under deep conviction of their sin and God's judgment that they'll understand that Jesus is the cure. That's important to know. say, well, I don't really want to kind of scare people by telling them that God will judge them. Don't you understand that people need to understand that they are under God's judgment? Otherwise, they won't understand that Jesus is the only cure. As long as everybody thinks they're okay, they won't understand what the cure is. And that's why it's very imperative to preach the law of God, that we've broken God's law. Jesus is the cure. I say Jesus, then, is the priest. He's the cure by his blood shedding. But he's also the prophet. Did you see that in the first two verses? Please read it again or look in your bulletin. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, God didn't create man with total built-in direction. Did you know that? He didn't create man to just, oh, I know what to do. I know what to do all the time. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. I'm sorry, God didn't create man that time. Man needs direction from the outside. By the way, even before the fall, did man need direction from the outside? Yes. What to do, what not to do. Now, after the fall, you can only imagine how important. That this external revelation is. Now the man has sinned and his mind is clouded with sin. Well, the Epistle of Hebrews talks and tells us that God spoke during the Old Testament times in various ways and by prophets who would utter uh, his truth. God would raise up men and sometimes women to speak the truth for him. They were God's mouthpieces. These prophets spoke the very living word of the living God. Well, the Hebrews were often surrounded by confusion and chaos and all of these competing words and all of these pagan nations around them and all sorts of different gods the Baals and Dagon and all sorts of various gods and in the middle of all of these competing words the prophet would come the God established prophet would come and say thus saith the Lord this is God's word." God would come But just as in the case of the Old Testament priests, so the Old Testament prophets pointed to the one final and enduring prophet. In fact, Moses predicted that there would be one final prophet. And we read in Acts chapter three and Acts chapter seven that that one final prophet is who? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Now, this is a beautiful thing. Jesus wasn't only the final definitive priestly sacrifice. That's true. He's also the final, definitive, revelatory prophet. Jesus is God's final, objective word to man, and there are no others. None. No others. Now the question is, where do we find this revelatory word? In the Bible, of course. Now Jesus spoke many, many words that aren't found in the Bible, but obviously the words that God intended for those after he passed away and rose again and went to heaven... Those words, the permanent words, are here for us to know. So, um, it's a good thing, too, because our age of multiculturalism is an age of competing voices of many truths. I mean, right? You know what I'm talking about? You turn on the TV, all these competing voices? In the Western culture... um, We have a lot of politicians that try to commandeer the authoritative word. Now, they enjoy the power of coercion, power of the sword, according to Romans 13. So their word, the word of politicians, can be very sobering because they have armies behind their word to enforce their word. And so they can scare people. They can decree that you have to hand over your legitimately gotten wealth to pay for wicked things. They can decree that men can marry men and women can marry women. Uh, oh, by the way, I want to say this. I didn't intend to, but I'm going to because I'm not going to be here to say it as much in the future. Um, homosexuals can be and should be forgiven. We should reach out to them with the truths of the gospel with great love. But I want you to understand that homosexuality is a serious, seriously deviant perversion of the truths of God, how he created man and woman and it is utterly destructive and the church cannot and should not and may not compromise on that issue and if you ever go into a church and the idea is well you know I mean it may not be the best but God kind of overlooks that then you might want to go up to the minister afterwards and point out what God did in Sodom and Gomorrah and what Paul said in Romans 1 Because as I understand it, our governor just signed a law basically wanting to get rid of the words husband and wife because, of course, that's not acceptable. Of course, which begs the question, why use the word marriage at all then? Eventually, that'll have to be eliminated, the language. It is a terrible, destructive, evil sin. Well, Andrew, why are you picking on that sin? Because that's the sin everybody else out there today is thinking is okay. Understand, those of us that speak against it say, why are you riding this hobby horse? We didn't bring the horse in here. Pagans brought the horse in here, and then we talk about it, and they say, why are you riding a hobby horse? We're not riding a hobby horse. They brought the horse in, and we're opposing the horse. They're preaching, Reverend Sam. The government decree that unborn babies can be butchered in the womb so the state can speak a powerful word. Unfortunately, in many cases, it's an antinomian, a lawless word an apostate word. Of course there are libertarians, secular libertarians, they counter with an authoritative word of the naked individual. I can reinvent my life. I create my own reality. The state's not going to tell me. The Bible's not going to tell me. Nobody's going to tell me. They want free markets and free sex. Well they're going to get God's judgment if they don't repent. And of course as our world becomes more globally networked barriers to all these competing words sort of evaporate and they're all just sort of colliding with one another. I mean, Americans become ena- enamored, don't they, of Asian religion? And uh, Asians become enamored of American technology. And so the Chinese use iPhones, and Americans convert to Buddhism. There's no right way, there's no wrong way, only many different and equally permissible ways. Now, into the, this moral quagmire, the word of Jesus Christ says this, I am the way the truth and the life the word of the prophet jesus is the authoritative word it's the authoritative divine word and all words that conflict with that word which is inscribed in this book are wrong and must be judged wrong jesus is the priest jesus is the prophet and jesus is the king in this passage it is very clear notice that in fact do you have your bibles there it's really neat i love the way that it's stated here the book of hebrews just the whole thing is just so eloquent it says in hebrews one he spoke to us you know the as i said prophet verse one he's the radiance notice verse three of the glory of god the exact imprint of his nature he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels. Now, stop there. What is this place of sitting down at the right hand of the majesty? That is the place of what? The place of authority. That's the place of kingship. That Jesus Christ is the mediatorial king. Now, of course, there were kings in the Old Testament. Jehovah was the king of Israel, but the Jews wanted a king like the nations around them. And God gave them one, Saul, who was just a bitter failure. But then God named the replacement. And that King David was mostly a godly man, a man after God's own heart. And then God, in 2 Samuel 7, had made a great promise, the Davidic covenant. Read it sometime. Go home and read 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says, as long as you have sons who will be faithful to me and to my law and to my truth... They will continue, they will continue, they will continue on my throne in perpetuity, in perpetuity. But eventually, sadly, eventually, they apostatize, and you finally get to Manasseh and all the way down, and it's just, they just fall. They go away from the truth, and God cuts them off. But but, but God kept a promise. And hundreds of years later, he came to a little girl, a young girl, I should say, a teenage girl, and said, I'm going to fulfill my promises. And there's going to be a king that's going to come. He's going to come from the line of David, the line of Judah. And he was Jesus of Nazareth. And he became king of kings and lord of lords. Now, man needs a king because man was never meant to be autonomous. That word autonomous means self-sufficient. Moment by moment, we were meant to depend on God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct you. But sin, of course, complicated that dependence. When the serpent came and deceived Eve, he pressed her to be her own authority. She would decide for herself what was right and wrong. How dare God as a king tell you what you can and cannot eat? That was mankind's first attempt at autonomy. And see where that got us. That's what autonomy does. Now, modern man, of course, lusts for autonomy, but that autonomy comes with a very heavy price tag. You know that, don't you, right? You go away from God and it looks fun, but it costs a lot. Autonomy wrecks the divine design, and then it gradually destroys man. Uh, when man uh, chases autonomy, then he wants his own way at all costs. And that means, by the way, travel. Now, there's sort of this large-scale autonomous trampling and small-scale trampling, but it ends up all being trampling. We have autonomous tyrants. They don't care for their citizens, treat them as instruments of their own power and greed. I mean, that goes for everybody from the ancient pharaohs to Stalin to Kim Jong-il to Barack Obama. Did I just say that? Yes, I did. (laughs) But that same autonomy afflicts small-scale tyrants, people like us. People we can use for our own ends. Now we don't understand that people are an end in themselves. The young man who uses a young woman for his own sexual pleasure. An employer that uses an employee to enrich himself without caring for the employee's family. Church leaders who use other church members uh, to just burnish their own credentials. That's small-scale tyranny. But it's still tyranny. It's still the same kind of tyranny. To all of these tyrants, the small-scale tyrants in the family, the more prominent tyrants in the corporate boardrooms, the global tyrants in the political palaces, to all of them, Jesus says, I am the king, and there is no other, and you must bow to me. And I must say the message of the kingship of Jesus Christ is one that you and I should be living out and trumpeting day after day after day. Jesus alone is king of kings and lord of lords. And by the way, there is no salvation, there is no purging of sin without the kingship of Jesus Christ. The old Puritans would say, he will not redeem whom he cannot command. And the idea that, well, I want Jesus to die for me, and isn't it really cool that Jesus died for me and all my sins are gone, and whew, this is really great, now I can live any way I want to. And I can have sex with anybody I want to, and I can think all the thoughts that I want to, and I can basically say anything I want to, and I can live any way I want to, and I can still be saved. Is sadly wrong. Jesus is our king but praise God the, the, the good kings of the ancient world not only exercised authority they cared so deeply uh, for their citizens and they felt a deep sense of responsibility for their subjects. Now that profound care characterizes our king Jesus. He doesn't rule us with vigor rigor, and with harshness but with love and with grace and John 15 says that he calls us He calls us his own friends. Now, think about this for a minute. I'm almost done. A kingly friend is an important friend because he has at his disposal great resources to fulfill his friendship. Ever hear this expression? Sometimes you hear it in movies. Be careful of doing so and so bad because he has very powerful friends. Ever hear that? Well, listen very carefully. We have a very powerful friend. A friend that can do things for us that other friends cannot. A king that is sufficiently strong to protect us against all enemies, including Apollyon. A king that can provide for our deepest needs. A king that can preserve us all the way to our heavenly home. This isn't some ordinary friend. He's a kingly friend. And he employs his kingship to benefit his citizens. That's not how Satan exercises his limited kingship. He's the destroyer. But that's not the great king of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, that's not. He exercises his kingship to bless and to benefit his people. To be a citizen of the kingdom is to be a beneficiary of his, I love this, his royal largesse. He just loves to pour out things on his people. Now ironically then, when modern men and women turn away from the kingship of Jesus in order to assert their own autonomy, when they turn away nobody's going to tell me what to do i want to do what i want to do they're actually turning away from the only one that can provide what they need it's like stupid sin is stupid boy that sounds profound doesn't it remember that sin is stupid sin isn't just bad sin is stupid these people would rather rule in hell than submit in heaven They'd rather blow up their whole life and the lives of everybody around them than bow the knee to King Jesus, who will do so many good things for them. So, to the unrepentant and to the rebellious, this kingship is a great warning repent or perish. We either submit to the king willingly and become his friends, or we submit to him unwillingly and we suffer his judgment. That's Jesus' office and work, my friends. I've just kind of summarized it today from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Jesus is prophet. Jesus is priest, Jesus is king. I would urge you never to be timid or ashamed in declaring that threefold office of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is the only cure, to refuse to be bold in declaring him is actually being delinquent in our responsibility to those around us. And then we would learn much to our chagrin that it's the nice, inoffensive non-judgmental Christians that are the most irresponsible and blameworthy of all. If Jesus Christ is the cure, we cannot withhold the cure. I'd like us to pray, and I would like Michelle, my dear friend of many years, to pray that God would impress on our hearts the truth of Jesus as our true prophet, priest, and king. Oh, thank you. yourself.